This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. Every week, there are a few emails that I read uh, religiously, and Hoff Capital's newsletter is one of them, and I love what he does on Twitter and the content he produces, and I was kind of shocked that I didn't get him on the podcast sooner, and so I DM'd him this week, I think it was like Monday or Tuesday or maybe even Sunday, and I was like, hey, let's let's do a podcast, let's, let's discuss your ideas and, and your investment process, and uh, he was like, yeah, let's do it. And here we are on Thursday recording. So I love, <laughs> I love, I love the quick turnaround and, um, Toph, before, before we dive into a bunch of your different content, mm-hmm. I want to get a background on who you are and how you got started investing. Sure. Well, first of all, Brendan, thank you very much for having me. Big fan of your, uh, your podcast. I, I think your podcast might be the first financial investing podcast that I discovered, so to speak. Years ago, so big fan, big time, uh, long time listener here. Yeah, how did I how did I start? So, um, always interested in uh, in investing, always interested in what these uh, you know since I was little what these stock prices meant. Um, but it took me quite some time to move into the financial world. Um, I definitely was not one of those people that you know bought his first stock when he was eleven and then uh, saved everything to buy more stock. Absolutely not. Took me quite some time. I at university I went on to study physics, and after my bachelor degree, um, I well you can say I had some kind of um, I don't know, it was midlife crisis, maybe you can say from, okay, uh, I'm here, uh, master's degree in physics. Uh, do I like the idea? No, not really. What would I like to do? Uh, really like to do, I mean, maybe something in finance and investment. So either I do it now 
or it's uh, too late. And that's a little bit of feeling uh, that I had. So I did literally a U-turn, left physics, and went on to do uh, business administration and then my master's in finance and investments. And to be honest, as of that moment, it was really also, yeah, luck. I think luck was a very big component because my first job out of university was at a big four corporate finance, uh, big four uh, audit and advisory firm uh, on the corporate finance department. And the corporate finance department was so big there that they split it in three different groups. You had the M&A part, which we call the PowerPoint division. Then you had the financing uh, part, you know, the Excel guys, really, really smart people. And then you had the valuations team. And I actually wanted to go on to the M&A part, but you now they asked me, okay, we have a seat for you in uh, on the valuations team. What do you think? Valuing companies, valuing assets all day. And I thought, yeah, I mean, let's try it. Why not? And it turned out one of the best decisions I ever made, maybe the best decision in my career. Found very smart people. I loved it. We did tons of valuation work, uh, all in the private space. Uh, obviously, lots of private companies, uh, but also different kind of assets, weird companies as well. Uh, a lot of uh, financial modeling, tax related, even divorces. I, I didn't even know that they, uh, they would call in a valuation expert for <laughs> certain divorces. So really, really, really nice. Did that for about four years and I thought, okay, I have all this knowledge, you know, I value uh, companies, etc. I did also some valuations just for myself of publicly listed companies, but still never invested. Um, and I thought, okay, why why not apply all this knowledge to uh, public companies? I mean, it should be a perfect fit. So I changed jobs and again, luck. I got the opportunity to start. Uh, I saw this, uh, this uh, well, it's a big company in the Netherlands um, and they uh, were asking for a, um, I think it was some analyst officially. And I thought, okay, you know, let's try, uh, apply, and maybe they're going to give me a sector or whatever. And I got the job and uh, it was really interesting because uh, the first day I, I came in and they showed me, okay, this is your uh, seat, this is uh, your colleague you've met, this is the fund, this is Bloomberg, go manage the fund. I said, what do you mean, go manage the fund? I mean, don't you, aren't you going to give me, I don't know, a few companies first or, or a sector, whatever? No, 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 this is the fund. Yeah, man, you've met uh, your colleague here, go manage it. And you know, that was you know a little bit scary at first, but basically from day one, they made me uh, their portfolio manager. Again, luck. Obviously, the first few years, uh, the CAO and, and some other people uh, you know came around, asked and uh, probed a little bit doing you know, what we were doing. But for the rest, a lot, a lot of freedom. And I did that for almost a decade. And um, just a short while ago, I changed the position that uh, I am right now, which unfortunately I cannot be too more specific about it, but obviously still in the markets. So, I mean, that's where we are today. That's a fascinating story. So many winding turns. And I, I guess the first, <laughs> the first turn I want to, I want to explore is, is your initial foray into physics. So why, why physics if, <laughs> if you didn't end up using something physics related in your in your job so the honest answer is because i was lazy so the idea that i had some friends they went on to be doctors and lawyers and i always had a you know, huge respect for these people because i thought man spending so many hours reading these big books etc and the idea of physics was like okay you now you have a concept you have uh, you know a few mathematical equations if you can understand them you're good to go 
obviously it's not that easy, but uh, it's for me, it was way easier than to say, okay, I'll go pick up a book and uh, uh, become a lawyer. That would have been, I would never have been able to do that. So the honest answer is um, because I was lazy. <laughs> when I was lazy in college, I just, I didn't go to class and I just <laughs> went to the gym instead and read books. So your definition of lazy is going into physics makes me feel pretty worthless. <laughs> <laughs> so you so you go from graduating you were studying you were studying physics you said i want to do this investing finance thing you get thrown into this valuation team department whatever you want to call it how did you get up to speed so quickly how did you go from knowing nothing to being one of the experts on this valuation team and valuing private companies divorces public companies all of that yeah so again i mean it was it was a one one part is luck, because obviously if you do your master finance and investment, you do a little bit of valuation, but you don't do that much. You definitely not become an expert. Um, and um, well, lucky in a few reasons. So it was a very good time to start. So they were looking for it. Uh, it was um, the market was really interesting um, and there was lots of valuation work. So they were looking for a lot of people. And I started just to read a lot, everything about who, you know, uh, the classics, you know, McKinsey books, uh, the Madara and Hesaton out there. And I just studied everything. And then when I got the job, I remember the partner saying, I mean, you, you, I think you're a smart guy. You don't know anything. So what we're going to do is, uh, this is uh, Rob. It's not his real name, but this is Rob. You're going to sit next to Rob for four months and uh, he's going to teach you everything that he knows. And that's exactly what uh, what he did. It turned out that Rob was a very, very smart guy and also, uh, in my opinion, a very talented investor. Because, I mean, you know, investing is you can learn the basics. Everybody can learn valuation. But then the biggest part is, you know, the subjective part, uh, learning to know yourself and, and, and whatever and what fits to you. And I mean, this guy was just really, really good. Um, I could spend days doing evaluation and then he would look at it and say, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Let's change it hmm. because he yeah, had this experience and this, uh, say, this feel for the things. And this is something that I, I, I got and I brought directly over into you know the public world because that's, I mean, from a valuation perspective, uh, perspective and the knowledge to value companies, it was a good fit. But then again, you know, in the public markets, it's so different than the private markets, obviously. So lots of other things come uh, are important. What mistakes did you make early on on the valuations team where, uh, let's say, Rob would have pulled you aside and said, hey, you know, this is this is where you went wrong. This is this is what you should have done that that you see a lot of other investors make um whether you you know scroll through twitter and kind of look at their pitches you just see like oh like they're just not getting it yeah so i mean you have to understand that that was a an advisory part um and a, I mean a, a consulting job so to speak so you literally always said i mean this client is going to pay 50k for 20 pages so you calculate how much he's going to pay for each page so each page has to be absolutely perfect and you have to value everything so on the balance sheet even the smallest immaterial thing you had to have an opinion on understand it etc and this is something that uh, well i'm not saying it's useless on the private markets but yeah I mean, you you don't value. It's about materiality, right? Yeah. And um, the first thing I learned is to get 
away from my, I came from physics, right? So it was okay. To give an, an example, this is the, the WAC formula, right? Uh, and we have various uh, ways how to estimate that. And I was just, you know, very analytical in doing everything and did everything that how it was supposed to be. And then maybe the answer uh, was not, you know, didn't make sense. But for me, at first, it was like, oh, why not? I mean, this is the formula. I did everything right. And the guy was not, I mean, think about it. Think about the company. Think about, you know, the markets. Think about the, uh, the environment, economic environment where we're in. I mean, no way. Or maybe uh, if I go, if these guys go to the bank, they would be able to refinance that, you know, 2 3% uh, more cheaper. So it just simply the fact get away from my technical physical thinking into this more subjective gray part which is you know a very important part in uh, in, uh, in in investing so that was definitely the, the first step that i made i think that's another important aspect of starting in the private markets as you did where the or the private markets when you have those conversations whether it's ceos or investors or cfos you really understand how detached the real world is from like a textbook cursory knowledge of finance and yeah. your your example is perfect like weighted average cost of capital right no one goes into a meeting in a private business and they're like oh what's my whack it's it's hey like what can i refinance my debt at or hey what is the bank telling me they can lend to me at like there's exactly. your whack and like that's it you don't need a formula you don't need beta you don't need risk adjusted beta you just go and you see what people are willing to lend you money at and then like that's your that's your formula you don't need exactly. the you don't need the fancy math absolutely i mean that's exactly the case and obviously that is one of the dichotomies between i mean you just said it between the private and the public markets and mm. it's it's a good learning ground but man i mean uh, it took me quite and obviously you know once you go on the public side there's so much more there's the sentiment part and the liquidity part and then maybe you have just one big shareholder who decides everything so there are lots of other things that that's coming to mind. I mean, both positive and negative, right? Because it's in some way, one thing that is still really, really helpful is you don't have a public valuation. You don't have a price. And the moment you see a price, I mean, everybody has it. I have it. You probably have it as well. It's it's you anchor it to the price or maybe yep. the price, you know, starts telling your story. The charts, you know, starts uh, telling your story. Uh, or you make up a narrative of why this and that happened, um, which is, you know, it's a form of bias and we, uh, everyone has it, but you don't have that in the private markets. No. And we mentioned, and we're probably going to discuss this later, but ADF group, which is a company you wrote up, yeah. I was, I was saying right before we hit record, I'm like, man, I look at the chart. And it pisses me off because I didn't, I didn't get in. I didn't, I didn't even look when this thing was, when this thing was a lot lower. And that's, that's a form of price anchoring where you just exactly. look at, you look at past price history and you think, oh, like I'm too late. I missed out. <laughs> but anyway, in a private business, there is no kind of stock chart for the value of a company. It's funny because I actually tweeted about that. So there was, I think this moment where uh, ADF group, they reported a very big order, like 140 million or something from the US. Um, and I think their uh, their backlog was like 350, so very, very big. Um, and uh, I the stock went up 14%, like 10, 14%. I mean, way too low, way, way too. And I tweeted, uh, I mean, if you see this chart, it was already going vertical. I said, I mean, be careful because you look at this chart and the first thing, you know, that your mind tells you is, oh, it's too late. Oh, yep. I missed it. 
But this order was so big and the movement was so much less compared to the actually, you know, valuation, so to speak, impact uh, of this order that, you know, even after the 14% move, the stock was now cheaper than it was before. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the things that actually helps me a little bit, um, uh, you know, in the in the public markets, uh, which this experience that I had. But obviously, it's not all. And I, I mean, I often fall uh, prone to this uh, to this bias. Absolutely. So you go from this valuation team to really getting thrown in to the deep end and being a portfolio manager right out the yeah. which you mentioned is 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 lucky and i mean that is in one way it's lucky right because you get to be in the decision maker seat but in one way it's unlucky because you're like oh my gosh like am i ready for this <laughs> like am i like so, um, i'm i'm sure there's so much imposter syndrome floating in your head at that point so walk me through kind of those those psychological battles you may have had and then also like how you approached day one portfolio construction right so you may have had like ideas in a model portfolio or ideas that you were tracking that you liked at one price and then you become a pm maybe those names have run up and you're like well shoot like i don't really know what to add to my book on day one and you know so walk me through those pressures that you felt (laughs) well it was actually yeah i mean it's it was more or less like you said uh you have to take into account this was a uh fund uh, that focused on european small and mid caps so and we had just very back then and then it changed with time but back then we had very very few restrictions like uh, no weapons no gambling uh, mm-hmm. and a few of those and then it had a market cap restriction or a uh, limit so to speak it had to be above a certain liquidity certain market cap but then it was off to the races i mean we had energy you had staples you had whatever kind of you know weird companies that you can find you could we could buy so and in the beginning it was i mean honestly i first of all we were two people so that was uh, that obviously helps and this is also a classic team where one plus one was three so we uh, it's still a, a good friend of mine um and um yeah in the beginning i i mean to be honest i always had i, I never had in the professional world too much stress and the reason for that is for some for some reason, I always thought, okay, you know what? Worst thing that can happen, they fire me, right? You know, I get another job. And that was always, I mean, it sounds weird, but it's, you know, it was always in some way, um, it relaxed me. So I thought, okay, now we have this opportunity. I mean, you can value companies, just, you know, start from uh, the top one, value them all so that you can learn all the companies and then see what's, what's good or, or what's bad. And, and that's what we did. And, but then obviously it's, you're two of them, you start screening for companies, you start reading sales report, etc. You come up with ideas and you start sparring. And uh, that's how you create, um, you know, some synergies and you find interesting companies. But yeah, in the beginning, it, it was uh, just to give you an example. So we had this company, it was called uh, Ubisoft. Yep. They make, uh, they make the games. And back then it was like the perfect market for these companies because it was the the moment where they went from the hardware to uh to software you know downloads mm-hmm. so high gross margins cut out the, the middleman um that was one you had uh, it still didn't have so many triple uh, a franchises so the pipeline was really really full um and obviously the franchise it was also the demographics the demographics right because my dad never played games 
but I still play games with my kids uh, sometimes. So, it, you know, people are like me and you getting a little bit older, having now still the money, still playing, etc. So everything was going well. But every now and then this company would come out and say, you know, this AAA game, yeah, we're a little bit delayed. We're not going to publish it in this quarter, but in two quarters. And mm-hmm. the stock would plummet 30%. And for us, it was like, you know, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you move like the cash flow six months, it definitely does not make 30% difference. So in the beginning, and we would just buy a lot of, of, of these moments, a lot of these uh, kind of companies where a lot of volatility was happening there. And I think the lucky part was that nobody at that time uh, challenged us. So obviously we had the we had um, a few managers with the CEO, but you know we had a lot lots of freedom. But to be honest, this changed with time. It be, and the job actually became more stressful with time because at some point, uh, either due to uh, new regulation, due to uh, uh, just the complexity of the markets from a regulatory point of view. And also there is the move to ESG, etc. Flexibility, um, inflexibility increased. Hmm. And also for some reason, I think, you know, just the people in the market and themselves. I mean, back then when I started, long term was like two, three, four years. Now, I mean, long term is like three months. So and every time at some point that the company went down 20, 30%, which definitely can happen with small caps. I had some, you know, private banker running to me and what, what is happening? I have a very angry client on the phone and this and that. That never happened at the beginning. So it's also a little bit, you know, it was easier times, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And that 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 makes sense. Um, and so you've got you've got this portfolio, you're making decisions. At what point do you develop whether that's kind of a core investment philosophy or i like to i like to ask a lot of guests like what is your perfect investment um if you could if you could construct some sort of opportunity and you know that doesn't have to be you know it's got to be in one industry but maybe the characteristics that you look for in an ideal setup um that you that you kind of honed and crafted over over the years managing that that portfolio yeah so I have to, you know, put a little disclaimer uh, on, on this answer because I, you know, I'm going to give an answer, but if I look in, in practice, particularly in, you know, with uh, my personal funds and personal accounts, what did I buy? Uh, I, you know, honestly, a lot of crap. <laughs> a lot of roadkill. There you <laughs> for go. For some reason, for some reason, I tend to, you know, I see roadkill and I tend to run uh, towards it. I like it. Um, but I mean, in theory, it's it's actually really simple. It's a company where I see both earnings and evaluation, let's say multiple, both the earnings and multiple growth. That's it. You know, if there's a company where I can see, okay, over the next four, five, six years, this company can really grow earnings and it's still cheap, you know, from a multiple valuation perspective, uh, then I'm interested. So that's that's uh, basically it um and i tend i obligate myself to be honest to put if i look at my personal account to put a big part of it in these types of investments otherwise because i'm very attractive to you know like i said roadkill where you know stuff i mean i one thing that i learned pretty early on is that you know everyone can value companies when times are good and when everything goes right but the moment something bad happens 
then uh, I mean that's when you also talking to other fund managers, talking to other people. That's when you see a lot of volatility also in the opinions and in evaluation. I mean, obviously it's nothing new, right? I mean, we know that for us it's another bias, right? Losing ten weighs way more than uh, gaining ten. Mm -hmm. um, and that's you know when something really bad happens. That's when you know the valuations and the opinions and the volatility tends to go uh you know all kinds of directions and there are good opportunities so i i i'm always on the lookout for such moments where there's a company something bad happens or it's a really crappy company maybe but not that crappy so where the valuation tells you you know it's basically an option mm -hmm. yeah i don't know if this answers i, I no it answers yeah i mean it answers <laughs> it because it's 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 simple it's you try to find ideas where at the price that you're finding them you believe that there's both upside on an earnings cash flow basis and then a re-rating at some point kind of like the twin engine of, of yeah of, of i mean obviously that's an ideal uh if you then go to i mean obviously you tend to go to the small and the micro caps a lot but yeah. you know managing also a mid-cap uh, fund um, there are plenty of opportunities also in in, in the mid-cap space i mean i wrote about parco i wrote about uh, uh the specialty chemical sectors where you know i'm doing a write up doing some work on azilis uh, we could talk about both uh, of them if you want later on these are you know multi-billion companies you know two two three four five billion uh market cap companies and and still at this moment because you know this this, this i mean because the markets are bad and uh, again if markets are bad and maybe the earnings are not going uh fully in the right direction you know people start with this narrative why it can be bad for longer and this and that well my experience is you know it's 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 a difficult moment like every company has a difficult moment and multiples go down and i can see multiples going up in a few years with earnings as well and and, and there you go there you can still have both in a yeah, multi-billion uh, euro company i was talking to a friend of mine who runs a fund and we were discussing idea generation and and being frustrated with not finding like really uh, asymmetric um, actionable ideas and he he mentioned you know it's something that's obvious but he was like you know brandon um like the best ideas usually come around when you know something's troubled or there's or there's a you know situation where the company takes a downturn and it's not a structural you know it's not it's not structural but it 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 happens and 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 the company finds a way to kind of fix it and change it and and improve and when you when you kind of realize that like for me it, it took you know it takes like multiple successions of something before i really understand and kind of internally develop that where it's like yeah you're only going to find these great bargains when something's wrong and then yeah. when something's wrong that's when the most amount of people are going to tell you to stay away and uh, hey like this thing's trash so it's that weird dichotomy where the the exactly the, the best ideas are found when there's the most you know kind of tumult basically i mean let me give you an example of that i have a friend of mine and i'm so jealous about this guy because he started investing when he was you know 15 60 mm -hmm. 70 years old and uh, he has done it for uh, more than two decades now etc and he has a very very good track record but i think he spends like maybe 10 hours each three months on investing and he does this very very i mean very stupid strategy so he has like a short list of say 50 you know big 
companies, well-known companies, uh, stable. Think about L'Oreal, you know, LVMH, yeah. Coca-Cola. Now they're kind of companies. And, and he selects 10 of those. Like every three months, he goes back and he says, okay, which one did, uh, did really well? And particularly, which one did really bad out of these 50? And then he just shifts them. You know, he uh, just you know puts he changes two or three of them, and he buys uh, you know maybe LVMH at a difficult quarter or two, and he buys LVMH, and then after three months LVMH. So he does it very diligently every time, without looking at the market, without looking at what's happening. He just has this system, and he has done it. And obviously, that's the power, right? It's the consistency to be able to do this for. And, you know, not to deviate from your system, not to get scared out of markets, etc. Mm -hmm. And he has done it for more than two decades. And I mean, he didn't do 25% uh, a year, but uh, I'm guessing at least high teens. And if you look at, you know, it's a pretty good return for such a long time, particularly thinking about how little time he spends, you know, doing it. So, <laughs> I mean, but I mean, you know it, right? I mean, in investing, we tend to make things way more complicated than <laughs> than what they should be, and uh, often you're trading against yourself, uh, right? Yeah, That's, uh, maybe your biggest enemy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of my favorite investors is a guy that I know locally, uh, who has pretty concentrated book, and he makes probably one investment every year and a half. Yeah. Like that's it, yeah. and he spends most of his time reading, looking at you know, looking at stocks. He's like, I barely buy, I barely sell. Like my portfolio is my portfolio. Like he bought Costco, and now he makes you know his annual dividend is higher than his cost basis, <laughs> original cost basis. Like it's 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 crazy stuff. Um, so you so you go from managing money, um, and you know you may you may still do that in some capacity. Yeah. What made you? want to write online and publish your ideas online at uh at your substack which is let me plug it it's toughcap.substack.com so it's i mean it's the idea i always wanted to write something up i, I like to write and to be honest i'm not, I'm not the, definitely not one of the best writers out there there are so many people who can write really well um and i always had we had this writer friend uh, in the family um and he could just you know take the most simple concept uh the most dumb ideas and just write a few lines about them and you were like in awe i mean how the hell can you able to translate that in such a cool you know not complicated but just you know in a really cool way and i would want to do that and obviously you know i like finance and investing and then it was, I think, in 2020 when COVID uh, broke. And for me, it was, you know, uh, an interesting time. Um, I spent almost a year at home uh, managing the fund uh, at home. And, you know, you're sitting here uh, on your own. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's nice to do video calls, but it's... Uh, at that point, by the way, I was doing this uh, on my own, so managing the fund uh, on my own. And it was, I mean, I, I liked it. Uh, it's. But, you know, at some point you thought, okay, let's, let's just see if we can just get some more uh, pushback from uh, ideas that I have or maybe just, you know, start writing up. So it wasn't really something tangible, uh, to be honest. And uh, I had the time and the fund structure also changed a lot. So I was, to be honest, not super happy where, where the fund was going. 
um, still great performance, no, but you know, I was already in my head, uh, in my head with, okay, maybe it's time to find something else. Um, and then, you know, I started to do, uh, to write online, to write a tough cap. And basically I wrote what's about what I was buying privately. And back then, you know, again, you know, with going to, uh, to watch the crap and, <laughs> and, and the roadkill, I think it was, uh, SPACs. I wrote a, a lot about SPACs back then because I've been looking at SPACs for, uh, what is it? Five, six years. And then, you know, the SPAC hype came, there was just you know, plenty of opportunities. So, uh, I wrote about that. And then at some point I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this and people are reading this, maybe, you know, look at some more serious companies, um, and some companies that, you know, might create really value for some, for other people, because, you know, we can have two bad investments, two crappy companies, and, you know, maybe I can make money out of it, but someone else doesn't. And if I write it up, maybe sounds interesting, but maybe the other person doesn't know uh, what he or she is doing. So I felt kind of like, okay, maybe let's move to more mature companies, more companies where people can buy, you know, even later on. Got it. No, that makes sense. And, um, you know, just going through your Substack, like you've got um, this thing called the Monday Monitor, which yeah. it's one of the most, uh, you know, every, every Monday I, you know, I, I look, I look forward to reading it just cause it's a great high level idea generator. And so what, what was the, what was the, uh, you know, impetus behind starting this Monday monitor and, and how did you, you know, kind of craft this, what looks kind of like a research, like a weekly research process just that you do internally that you're now sharing. Yeah. So it's exactly, it's exactly that. So, I mean, writing up investments, it's always nice, but I mean, it's what we said before, right? It, it, it can be something that's good for me, but maybe you read it and said, yeah, you know what? It's, I don't think it's that nice, etc." And, um, I thought, okay, you know, I'm putting this out, getting lots of questions, etc. but how can I, how can I maybe help other people? Uh, because that's the problem that I had back when I, you know, uh, when I was maybe in my late uh, teens, early twenties, where I really wanted to invest, but I had no idea how, no idea where to find good ideas. And uh, I was, I mean, I have a big family, but nobody here was in the finance and investment world. So it was really, um, it, it, was really it, it was so way off, like on the other side of the ocean. So I had no idea. And I thought, okay, you know what? I mean, I'm looking at you know, public markets every day. Every day I find interesting stuff. Why? And I, I have, you know, I have short lists, watch lists. Why don't I just publish? my watch list, you know, which, which three, four, five, six really interesting companies did I find this week? And, uh, particularly on the event driven side, I, I always, you know, tend to look at investments where you can make quite a good return in a really short time, particularly with the defined catalyst. And I have lots of those. I, 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 uh, by the way, it's, it's also crowdsourced. So if you read on tough cap, sometimes I'll talk about we, and the reason because like what we is because there are now two, three, four other funds managers that also read it and come up with ideas uh, on their own and they sometimes share it. So that's why, you know, you see uh, maybe in a week I have like 15 new event driven ideas. That's, yep. I mean, I, it's not that I come up with 15 new ideas uh, by myself every week. It's, um, Fortunately, I have other people who, uh, who, I mean, like what I would do, and 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 they share their ideas. So, and and to be honest, I think that creates more value than the write-up 
I mean, the write-up is, yeah, more for myself so that, you know, I have on paper or uh, what's uh, at least the idea. And if someone else is interested, sure, then they can reach out to me. But to be honest, I think Topic Monitor, Monday Monitor is, is more valuable for that sense. Mm -hmm. And you also write industry primers and sector primers. And one of those that I want to discuss here is the specialty chemicals industry. Yeah. And so if we, if we start kind of at the top, right, because I'm always fascinated in how people go from zero mm -hmm. to one in industries that, you know, they, they, they don't know before and then like what they do to get up to speed. Yeah. And so walk me through how you tackled that industry in particular. Like, what did you read? Uh, what did you listen to? How did you develop that knowledge base? So it's, I mean, I basically start with uh, the companies themselves. So with the annual reports, there's a lot of there in the market as well. But maybe the big idea behind, in, uh, and just to give you an idea how I look at investment. So I've learned that um, at least it works for me that when you start attacking a new company or a new industry at first, it's like, okay, uh, probably you, you know this better than I do with all the people you talk to. Um, it's like blank. You have no idea. And then as you read, you start to form an idea. And then when you know it really well, it basically always boils down to two, three, four major teams, KPIs or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and this is my experience, at least for every industry and for every company. So, and basically the idea is I read so much about a certain topic and a certain company until I can distill the investment case or the industry in two or three big teams or uh, big tailwinds or, or big K or KPIs for a certain company. So that's the way uh, at least how to do it. And then obviously uh, talk to a lot of people. So I am fortunate enough that I know uh, in, uh, in the investment worlds a lot of people both on the buy side and the sell side. And there's always someone who looked at the company before or who maybe is invested or maybe who sold it because he thought it was crap or whatever. So, you know, just talking to a lot of people always uh, always helps. And obviously reading a lot. I mean, that's the number one rule in investing is to read a lot. So what did you find interesting about the specialty chemicals industry? Is it is it actionable now? And if so, where are you finding? Yeah. So, value? I mean, to be specific, it's especially chemicals distribution industry so mm. it's on the distributors okay. and i named it i know that the name is a little bit you know sleep inducing uh especially chemical distribution but it's a, to me it's i think maybe one of one of well maybe i don't think the in uh, in the most interesting uh industry out there but if you would ask me, you know, Tofcap, if you would buy a few companies and hold them for like 10, 20 years, which one would they be? Mm -hmm. To be honest, maybe the two uh, specialty chemical distributors here. And the reason I find it so interesting is, so one, it's a very, very young industry. And I think many people that they look at this company, this industry, they 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 think it's, it's bigger. They tend to connect it and you know put it all in one bucket with the specialty chemical producers or with the producers but it's i'm not saying it's completely different but these guys don't produce anything it's it's basically a platform mm -hmm. and the tailwinds are so big and so strong that i i i can see them easily grow for another 10 to 20 years easily so we have a few we can go into detail there are a few very big tailwinds and the market is so small i mean there are just at this moment two two pure play 
specialty chemical distributor companies out there. There are other companies like, I mean, Unibar just got bought out and we have Brand like a German company uh, who also does uh, the distribution of commodity chemicals. But if you look at like the specialty chemicals, there are just two pure play uh, players out there, uh, at least investable uh, and big enough. So that's, I mean, quite amazing if you uh, look at how, you know, big and fast uh, this industry could be. So what does a specialty chemical distributor do specifically? Like I know that they're kind of, you know, the platform, you know, that obviously distributes yeah. the product, but walk me through like, cause the way I'm, the way I'm thinking about it is like, I, I'm, I'm familiar with one distributor, um, Ferguson in the mm -hmm. HVAC plumbing business. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of using that as my, as my base model for understanding this industry. So, um, like let's take a company like you mentioned, let me see which one you mentioned. Yeah, IMCD. Yeah. So walk yeah. me through that company. So IMCD and basically they're, they're more or less the same. So in, in, you know, in a few years time, there should be any difference in my opinion between an Azalis and IMCD. I, but, and I think to now to, uh, I lean towards uh, Azalis because it's cheaper for a few reasons, but IMCD is, you know, it's a, the first who went public, the one who has the longest track record. And basically, Again, they distribute specialty chemicals, and these things are also called uh, performance chemicals. And they generally are, without making it too complex, it's the a very important uh, part of the final product. So it's a, a very small in, ingredient, um, and it can be you know used in shampoos or in medicines, in construction chemicals. It can additive a pigment. Uh, uh, a food ingredient, a, uh, a flavor ingredient, an active ingredient, whatever. It's something really small that's really important for the end product. And the volumes tend to be really, really low. So if you are a manufacturer of a shampoo and you buy certain specialty chemicals, you tend to buy them in really, really low volume. Uh, but they are really important. And um, there are just so, so many out uh, uh, out of there, uh, out there. And uh, that's one of the reasons also why this industry is so interesting is because the complexity is increasing. So if you think about, uh, well, maybe let's just take shampoo as an example. If you look at maybe how many types of shampoos there are for each, you know, different person, different kind of hair, etc then and if you compare it with 20 years ago it's now much more than what it used to be and that's for basically everything that could be in, in the on the industrial sides for uh sealants adhesives but that on, on the personal care side of stuff uh, thing on food stuff so if you want to make something taste better or more efficient or more healthy you need some kind of specialty chemical so it's a market that is growing in complexity as we know more as technology improves we can do, make stuff better uh, so that's one part. And the second part is also from a uh, global perspective. We are very much maybe advanced in the Western world, but we have big parts of Asia, big parts of Africa, big parts of Latin America. We're still a lot of, uh, you know, efficiency uh, can be uh, can be done, a lot of innovation, um, where still many things have to come uh, onto the markets uh, there as well. And it's a global market in that sense. And the fact that these are low volumes, you generally don't tend to uh, transport them really often. So production is often very local and trans transport is not much. 
So that's, I mean, if you're a bigger producer, that generally is a headache for you because you tend then, I mean, you need, uh, I don't know, 10 different types of specialty chemicals just to normalize it. And you maybe have to go to five, six, seven, eight different producers, which is called principal to buy them. So at some point, I don't know, 25 years ago, IMCD was one of the first, they said, you know what, why don't we just be the middleman? Why don't we just buy all a lot of specialty chemicals from the producers? It could be like the Bas F, the Girodan, you know, the usual suspects. And uh, we become like this one big uh, one-stop shop. So they don't have to go to uh, 10 different people. They just come to us. And they basically, you know, grew that way. And it's a very, very fragmented market for the reason that I mentioned uh, before, because it tends to be very, very localized. So at some point they started just to, to buy other companies and uh, it, uh, acquiring these companies and integrating them. It's really simple. It's like a Lego piece. You have this very big green board uh, that could maybe, you know, one big acquisition, a platform acquisition, and then you can just add you know, stacks of Legos on, on top of it. It's really easy to integrate. Um, in you know, to, literally to form this kind of web throughout the world. And this is something that they have been done doing for, uh, for, for, for two decades, and you know, the market remains fragmented. So, I mean, bottom line, you have an industry that is growing like GDP plus one, 2%. So that's one. It's not especially chemicals are growing uh, a little bit faster than GDP. You have uh, more complexity in the final products, but also regionally because everyone uses more specialty chemicals as time passes by. So demand increases in that sense. Um, and you have a you know incredibly fragmented market. I think maybe the top four or five players, they own like 15% of the market, one five. And uh, you have like thousands of other smaller players, which are very easy, relatively easy to integrate. By the way, when, when they buy something like this Lego piece, it's almost only intangibles. So because the most, what, what do you buy? They buy basically the network, the salespeople, and you very important you buy the relationship with the principal which is like say the Basef and the Givaudan because it tends to be exclusive so you buy this relationship and you tend to have a contract with a Givaudan for example for a specific period for a specific product in a specific region and you're exclusive you're the only one who can sell that product Givaudan product into that market for a certain period. So you're basically locked in. And that's maybe the number one reason that they uh, that they buy. So I was looking through that write-up and in terms of valuation, it looks like they trade at 11, 10 to 12 times EBIT, EBITDA. So with the exclusivity in these, in these acquisitions they're making, like what are they buying these smaller players for? And then um, is there any cyclicality in the space where, you know, you, you, you try to buy it, whether that's, you know, peak or trough valuations and hope that it re-rates from say six to 11 on, on a normalized earnings basis, or do you think the multiples are going to expand over time? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, let me just tackle the last one first, because it's, it's also the reason why the opportunity is so interesting today. So, uh, I mean, obviously they're exposed to the, especially chemicals. So, if the producers, it's obviously the chemical producers, uh, it's a cyclical space and we see it right now 
the entire space uh, is particularly on the industrial part because you tend to split the market in two, like in the, the industrial side and you have the life sciences part, uh, at least that's how these guys are doing. Particularly the life, the industrial part is doing really badly and you can see it in the process of many chemical producers. So if the producers are, you know, very, the volatility, the amplitude, so to speak, in the earnings is really big. It's also in the case of the distributors, but much, much, much less. And the reason is simply because one, these products are, you know, important. So uh, you still uh, need uh, lots of specialty chemicals to uh, to make your product. And obviously the diversification, both from a product perspective, but the geographical perspective. Um, but it tends to go down. And at this point in today, we are in a, after a few very, very good years due to COVID where these guys grew, you know, insanely. I mean, I'm looking at, what is it? I'm looking at Azilis right now, and they doubled basically EBITDA in two years' time, thanks yeah. to COVID. They went from, I think, like 260 to 70 million to more than five and a half billion in EBITDA in a few years' time. And, and now we are, you know, maybe no, not maybe, we are normalizing a bit. And the big question now in the industry, and that's what creates the opportunity, how how much do they normalize so how much right. you know what is uh, a normal kind of earnings and we can go into that uh, as well um so that's your value so obviously still some form of cyclicality um but i mean to be honest uh, organically they are declining but they will still grow on an EBITDA year on year so <laughs> that <laughs> gives you a little bit of idea of what's you know the strength of these businesses if you can say that you are in a down cycle but you can still be able to earn, to grow year on year on an uh, operational earnings that's that's quite good and that has to do obviously with those acquisitions that they do acquisitions you have to think about two things one is the platform acquisitions which is you know okay we want to attack South America we need one bigger producer there, which you know has a very lo local knowledge, good sales people, etc. Uh, those tend to be a little bit more expensive, and mm -hmm. historically they have been in the low teens uh, EV EBITDA. And all the uh, and that fluctuated a little bit, you know, higher a little bit, uh, less dependent on on, uh, on the period uh, and on the cycle. And all those add-ons tend to be between the five and ten times EV EBITDA. Um, but the synergies, it's, you know, it's, it's, you have to think about it. So you gain basically an entrance into a specific product, but yep. that salesperson can then sell many other products uh, as well. And that's one of the synergies that, that you create. And maybe two things that are also important to, to, in this industry. So this is basically a sales, you know, uh, a sales team. So the, the um, the staff the salespeople are really important here um and one big difference between say a producer is that these guys tend to have to know the product and you, they tend they have to be you know it, it takes like three to six months to pay the salespeople in to sell a specialty company because they, they have to know a lot and the reason is that many times the end client does not know what they want or maybe they know what they want but they don't know how many different solutions there are out there so that's why companies like Anacelis of IMCD have many labs laboratories they have like 60 70 80 labs where they continuously test how to improve a specific end product what what if we substitute this specialty chemical with this other cheaper specialty chemicals what if we uh, invent something new 
And the salespeople has to bring this knowledge to the end clients, or at least, or bring the end clients to the company to tell them, okay, you know what, we have this lab, we can maybe work out a new solution for you. So the value add component is also really interesting and really important here. And that's also a really big important piece of the thing that you buy, of the company that you buy. Yeah, no, I think the uh, I think the space is very fascinating, and I like I like the uh, the 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 object of of exclusivity and, and kind of you know buying territories and once you're in you're in um, and and yeah it seems it seems like a really interesting space and you know I've got it printed out so I'm going to read it here soon um, in its entirety but are there any other industries or kind of subsectors uh, that are on your radar that that you're looking to research like I know that we've got a couple um, individual equities that we're going to kind of discuss as we as we end the podcast but any bigger industries out there that you want to do you know one of these deep dives on so there's one industry that is actually one of the two companies that i'm doing some work now so i'm doing a, uh, some work on on azalis so you will probably see a write-up on, on that one soon but another one is a polish company called inpost and these guys they they make automated parcel lockers, you know, automated parcel machines. It's one of those lockers you see outside and, uh, you know, the package gets delivered there, you get a message on your app, etc. And this is one of these things where I thought at first, for a long time, I thought, oh man, this will never work. I mean, people have to go yeah. outside. You are used to get, you know, our packages at home. But then they had like, uh, they expanded a lot in Poland because it's, uh, you know, a Polish company. And they basically converted, you know, a big part of Poland into going from two door to using parcel locker machines. And now they're doing the same thing in France, which is a different kind of market because people there, there go more outside to pick up a package. And in the UK as well, where apparently they have, you know, a luxury problem, uh, capacity demand was so high that they didn't have the capacity for it. So it's one of those markets where, and I, I have spoken throughout the years with a lot of these legacy postal operators. And many of them are, you know, monopolies or almost monopolies in, in every country. Uh, you have like La Poste in France, obviously. You have like Postmail in the Netherlands, B Post in Belgium, uh, you have Royal Mail, whatever. And they tend to be really, really sleepy. You know, they tend to be, you know, don't see this as a threat at all. And if there's one case, business case like Poland, um, where you know it, it proved that the, the model works or seems to work, uh, because I mean I talked with many people, maybe uh, they, they think Poland is you know not so developed, but uh, I've been there quite a few times. And if you would ask me which one is more developed, Poland, Italy, or Spain, I would definitely tell you Poland. Mm -hmm. So if they were able to convert, you know that country into going more use it and, and basically make the product work then why can't they do it into many other countries particularly if the competition is so sleepy so it's a really fascinating industry where you know boring as hell um, but then you you know you do a deep dive on what this company is doing and it's really interesting yeah and you've 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 written before about kind of the allure of, of boring businesses and I'm definitely part of that group uh, where if something if something <laughs> is boring, uh, I tend to I tend to find it fascinating, especially if it's a good business and um, or or just a good security, good good risk reward, good price. Um, I want to discuss one of your bigger winners, 
And, you know, I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, one that I'm upset that I didn't buy, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, and that is ADF Group. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. walk me through um, that company, uh, why you why you wrote about it, how you found it, and, um, you know, just kind of how, how that thesis has played out so far. So, I mean, ADF Group, it's uh, the ticker is, is DRX. And um, I found it because I was looking, I, I actually, I cannot remember how I found it. So maybe there was an older write-up on, on Vic, on the Value Investors Club, maybe some, someone mentioned it on on Twitter. I, I can't exactly remember, but I was one of the other co- one companies which, which reminded me ADF of was uh, Atlas Engineered Product, which is a... Uh, uh, well, it's it's a Canadian uh, microcap, but it had a few things that were remarkably simple. So, what ADF does, and I mean, not to get too much into detail, they make large, complex steel structures, things for airports, for buildings, etc. So, for the non-residential sector, and these things tend to be, you know, really big thing. Uh, thing it can take a lot of time to do that. Uh, the work can be very, very lumpy. Utilization rates can go all the way because obviously, if you get a big order, it's it's food utilization, uh, but it's also a physical space, right? If you have to make many of these standard complex steel structures, it can take a lot of space. So yeah. once an order falls off or or you're done with an order, utilization can go down, etc. So it's typical, maybe you know, boring, very, very cyclical uh, business. And basically, a few things were interesting. So one thing is, and it reminded me of of, uh, of AEP, is uh, it tends to be a local monopoly, simply because these things, you know, you cannot transport them for you know, thousands of miles. So you have to be very localized in production. So it tends to be, you know, once you're established, you tend to be to dominate the local market. And that's what they do uh, a little bit in the US, uh, in the region, and a little bit in, uh, in Canada. And so that's one thing. And the second part is obviously this infrastructure, because everybody knows that, you know, infrastructure, you need uh, trillions to uh, in the US and Canada, but also in Europe uh, to uh, to just improve it. Uh, There's a lot of maintenance. The the US passed this uh, infrastructure, uh, what is the Infrastructure Investment uh, Jobs Act, I think is it's uh, it's called so it's 1.2 trillion of infrastructure spending that's going to be a really big tailwind so that's mm-hmm. number two the big tailwind and the third thing is they invested for uh i think it, it costed them 30 million if i remember correctly an automated in a, a robotic line so they invested in efficiency over the past two three years to uh, build this robotic line where they can handle maybe less complex lower margin stuff but the fact that the throughput is much higher and it's now automatic it's it's basically a game changer so it's something that um once it's in production utilizations can be much higher throughput can be much higher and the margin is also quite interesting because maybe it's less specialized work less customized work but the fact that it's automated it's a big part is uh, robotic that is a complete game changer and uh, basically i discovered this company where they were i think in the last quarter last two quarters where they were almost done uh, with the implementation of this robotic line and the share price didn't basically react at all 
Hmm. And we have seen over the past two quarters, particularly in Q1, they've started to um, to use this robotic line. And I think they had their best quarter ever from a gross margin perspective, gross profit perspective. And then we had the last quarter where they started to really use this robotic line, another amazing quarter. So if you combine this, so if you combine this big tailwind of infrastructure spending with something that is now a big part of the business that can be automated, it's it's basically a killer because you are absolutely not the old company that you used to be because you have to now be valued according to this robotic lines. That means higher margins or higher multiples, more visibility, higher throughput. Um, and uh, we are not there at all. So hmm. when I bought this company, based on the estimates that I was doing, I think I, it was at like three times, maybe three and a half times EV EBITDA on the year that I was valuing it. And now we are still there. It's still uh, between three and four times EV EBITDA on this year. And I think, I mean, if you speak with management, the biggest question is, okay, how much capacity, how much growth can you handle? Yeah. And they told me, well, we don't see, we don't have an answer. Uh, we'll continue to invest, but based on what we have right now, we don't see why we can double revenues. So wow. just think about it. That's, you know, adds, you know, marginal revenue uh, and marginal earnings, which come at a much higher, uh, if you look at, you know, their OPEX, the OPEX basically didn't move uh, or a little bit uh, year on year. And uh, it's, you know, every added revenue from this automated line machines will fall through so i see no reasons why they could not continue to grow let's say the conservative at least 20 to 30 percent ebitda growth for the next two three four years and we're talking about a company that is now trading at four times keep in mind i mean valuations of the past should not reflect uh, first of all you still have the the size right i mean it's not a 50 million market cap anymore it's now i think more than 100 million so in a few yep. years time it will be you know interesting for a few people still no people looking at it so uh, no sell side and the fact that now you have more i mean it's it will remain it's still a cyclical business right so at some point you will have uh you will take a hit but the fact that they can take on maybe some smaller project high utilization more visibility definitely higher margins that's something that you know it's a new i'm not saying new company but it's so much different than what it was and um, again you look at the charts and you think man i missed it but to be honest i i don't think you i mean obviously you missed it from where it was a few years ago but yeah this, this is still one of my uh maybe interest most interesting picks that i have you know on my personal account at the moment and how do you think about position sizing something like this, both at entry and then as a position works and it works big, like ADF? Yeah. Do you do you trim it all? Do you have any sort of hey, it can't be more than X percent of the total portfolio? And this yeah. could be this could be for your PA and also for you know any money you manage professionally. Like, how do you like how have your thoughts on portfolio construction changed over time? So, yeah, I mean, that was definitely a trial and error to get that. I mean, when I started, um, I was very much in the, you know, you can be a stock market genius kind of camp. 
uh, eight positions, uh, maybe yeah. a position 30%, uh, but you can go, to, you can wake up and be down 30% just because, you know, one of your companies had a bad quarter. So I tended to, um, I, think my, I think my sweet spot is between the 10 and 15 names. Um, also because there is an opportunity there. So generally, let's say if you have 12 names, you like uh, maybe a third will do okay-ish, uh, a third will do uh, really, really well, partially because of luck, and a third will do really poorly, partially because you made a mistake, but also because of, you know, something happens. That something happened is, I have discovered, really interesting for me. So if if we are, you know, if we look down one and two years and there's a company who did really bad, but, you know, still, fundamentally, the story is still there, you know, the idea that you can just recycle some cash from one of these big, win uh, big winners into one of these companies, it's, uh, it's really interesting. And I tend to have more of these opportunities when I have 10 to 15 names instead to uh, instead of, you know, maybe high single digit kind of names. So that's one uh, reason. Then position sizing, I mean, obviously different if I invest for a client or if I invest for a personal account. I tend to, for me, like 15% tends to, to be the max okay. if I buy something. But then something weird happens with me. So let's say I buy something and it's 10%. If it goes down, up really quickly, like 30, 40, 50%, even if it has multi-bagger potential, I have to sell a little bit. I don't know why. It makes me sleep better. Uh, so let's say I have a 10% position. It goes to 13%. I sell 3%, go back to 10%. You know, even if it does like, you know, 30% up. But the weird thing is, if it then doubles, I'm perfectly fine with it. So yeah. once I sold a little bit of that early on, um, I tend to let them ride as much as I can. And the when I sell, it's also something curious. I almost never sell at fair value, almost never. I am almost always earlier. I mean, and the reason is very simple. So at the moment where, let's say an ADF should triple in two years, right? If it doubles in over the next six months, I probably have better ideas, even if it yeah. can still, let's say, double in a two year, a two year time frame. maybe I have better ideas, so I tend to, you know, look at that. So not only from a uh, how much and what's the money multiple I can make, but also in timing. And obviously yep. this very weird thing that, you know, I have to sell a little bit, but once I've sold a little bit, it can go on for, I mean, 30%, I don't care. Mm -hmm. So you're basically saying like, you know, hey, if a, if, a, if a stock doubles, like something like ADF where you you kind of redo your math and see, okay, like what's the upside downside? And if it's still, you know, at or above my threshold or, you know, if it's not the lowest uh, risk reward in my book, then I keep it. If there's something better, then I'll just sell the rest of it and, and put that into something that's got a higher risk reward. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. And the last idea that I want to discuss is one of the more fun ones, mostly because it's a, it's a kind of interesting off the beaten path name. Um, and it's run by one of my friends, Harris Kupperman. And um, <laughs> so disclosure, I don't, I don't own any of these names that we've discussed. So this obviously <laughs> isn't investment advice. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't own Mongolia growth company. Um, 
you know, that, that, that could change, but as of this recording, I don't own it. And so, um, you know, do your own due diligence is definitely, it's definitely, uh, illiquid. Uh, I think it's yeah. OTC markets yeah. and it's, it's an interesting little play. So walk us through kind of this, uh, little, I would say it's kind of, a, it, it's kind of a special situation type idea. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, it's, it's a weird one. This is one that I have. I mean, I've been following copy Harris Copperman for, I'm not saying almost a decade now, but you know, back when he still had like 20 people on Twitter and, uh, his blog were about, uh, you know, traveling, etc. And, um, so, I mean, for people who don't know him, there is this, uh, fund manager, it's called Harris Copperman. He's very active on Twitter. Uh, I think the handle is H copy at H copy. And he runs Praetorian Capital, um, and he has done uh, well over the past four or five years. Really, really uh, a good, uh, a good job. He's, um, I mean, I, I tend to think about him as a like an old school hedge fund manager. You know, like uh, the hedging has nothing to do with it. It's pure. You know, if we I see something interesting, I, I go in big with conviction, yep. or I don't do anything. Um, and I was liked about that because he came up with so many interesting ideas. And at some point I discovered that he was also the CEO of this company, Mongolia Growth Group. So the, the name was like astonishing, like really copy style. So apparently, you know, in the past, Copy was fascinated about Mongolia and uh, he um, went there uh, to invest. And he said about this company, Mongolia Growth Group, to invest in the uh, basically the, the Mongolian economy. Uh, which at the time, and I can't remember when it was, it was doing really, really well. Um, one of the highest growing, fastest growing economies in uh, uh, in Asia. Um, uh, laws of regulations were being relaxed uh, outside. It started to accept outside investments, etc. So everything looks good. And at some point, so he bought a bunch of real estate there. And um, at some point, you know, things turn around. I, I don't remember why, probably, you know, a new political party, new political regime came in, etc. And basically, it threw Mongolia in a uh, well, years long, uh, I don't know, it's recession, but at least, uh, you know, a bad period, bad economic period. And he, uh, I think, got stuck with, uh, you know, a lot of this real estate. And at some point, he started to sell stuff down, so sell, sell real estate. And to reinvest the money he made uh, or he got from uh, his uh, asset portfolio, real estate portfolio, into uh, public markets uh, entities, uh, public market securities. And uh, since 2019, he did quite a good job. I think if you look at the balance sheet, marketable securities, they were like three, four million, I'm talking Canadian dollars here. Uh, back in 2019, and they grew to uh, more than 30 million as of Q2 of last year. And uh, if you followed copy a little bit, so it's it's a big part of the portfolio. So one part which was interesting is this idea that okay, he's still liquidating, and he tweeted, you know, something. There was a bit on uh, the remaining real estate portfolio some time ago. I think it was 2022. Did not go through, so he's still actively looking to sell it down. Um, he was recently he tweeted something, you know, he likes to tweet about food, and he tweeted something uh, about food in Mongolia. So I thought, okay, he's in Mongolia. I mean, uh, probably has to do something with the Mongolia Growth Group. Maybe a new deal. I have no idea. This is just me purely yeah. speculating. But something is going on. He's not there, you know, vacation, at least from what I understand. So that's part. So, and, and the thing was trading. So it's uh, the tra trading at a discount uh, to uh, to NAV. 
Um, and uh, another interesting, so that's one thing. Another interesting part is if you follow Kapi a little bit, you know that he loves, at this point, he's, you know, he loves uranium, he loves oh, yeah. oil uh, a lot. And there is a split of the marketable securities. He gives a split, and we know exactly, at least the like top four, top five position, uh, what they are. And it's basically 75% is either uh, energy related, energy services, oil, uh, oil futures, uh, coals, uh, or uh, uranium. It's a big part of uranium. I think 30% is uranium. Well, you know, you probably know it really well uh, that uranium and oil over the past, what is it, two, three months have done really, really well. So yep. I was looking at Mongolia Growth Group and I thought, I oh, mean, this thing is still trading at like 15, 10, 15% discount. But if I look at like the top 75% of 75% uh, of its marketable security portfolio, it's tough that either doubled or maybe did 40% or 50%. Uh, or uh, you know has you know really really strong tailwind. So if you do a little bit of back of the envelope calculation, you will get a, an NAV. I think now it's in the in one point nine or something, and the yeah. thing is still trading at one point five or something. So it's it's you have still like twenty thirty percent upside to what should be. Um, if and if you believe, I mean that's you know uranium will continue to do well and uh, oil will continue to be high. I mean it's an interesting opportunity to. Uh, to buy a company, you know that the, it's a good fund manager. You know that the guy, you, there's much out there about Harris Kupperman. You, so you have to get a feeling, obviously, about his investment style, etc. But if you like it, you can basically go and invest along with a very good manager, which I respect a lot, uh, at a discount in a few themes, which are really interesting, which you know I believe yeah. as well. Yeah. No, it's it's a fascinating play, and you know we own. Um, we own some of the same stuff. Like I know we own we own Sprott in 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 decent size. And so what what attracted me to the idea is buying basically his portfolio at a discount to the nav. Exactly. Um and 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 just like getting a little bit of a leveraged play um on 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 kind of puppies bets, which you know is 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 pretty cool. Um and I mean, and so the idea obviously at some point with the trigger that somebody has to also from i think a regulatory point of view he has to liquidate and he's thinking about also liquidating the portfolio so this will continue to run until he can run it but at some point he has to sell and, and give uh, the cash back so and he you know if uh, like i said i respect the guy if he writes about it it's probably he will do it as well and uh, but again, I mean, I know you have been uh, digging into the uranium uh, hole. Uh, I warned you about it. If you uh, if you start looking at uranium, you <laughs> you won't ever go go back. <laughs> I don't know, man. I I spent spent basically the entire summer in copper, dragged myself out of that without losing a lot of money at all, which was nice because <laughs> copper's gone nowhere, but kind of sideways to down. So uranium's been a lot more uh, fortunate. For, for for our portfolio so we've gotten we've gotten lucky there um, yeah obviously it's, i mean i think the interesting part that it's a much smaller market right i mean uh, yes. for a long time i think the the question was okay how many what's the above ground inventories there i mean that was the basic part but a lot of these things you can answer by looking at the share price you know by the movement itself if you see you know people buying uranium but the price doesn't move a lot then you know yeah somewhere there is someone selling or somewhere there is inventory 
And when you see it, like, you know, it happened in a few quarters ago when the things started to move on, you know, less, less volumes, buying and purchase volumes move the price more, then, yeah. you know, okay, at least from my experience, something is going on, the market is getting tighter here, etc. Yeah, and going from copper to uranium, I mean, the size of the market, like you mentioned, is it's it's, it's crazy more. different. It's I mean, it's crazy different. Like you're looking at 25 million tons of 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 copper supply and demand, and you know, you're looking at thousands and thousands of of miners of producers, and then mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of different demand and end users. And uranium is just hey, you know, it's like these ten mines in these five locations. And they all, you know, it's like one or two customer bases. Well, three, three main customer bases. It's so much simpler. It doesn't mean it's doesn't mean it's easier, but it just means it's way simpler to kind of wrap your head around. Um, yeah, absolutely. I agree. This, is, this has been a really fun conversation. I'm glad we had this. I'm glad I get to release this. And it's nice because this is coming right after you crossed four thousand followers on Twitter. Which congratulations, by the way. <laughs> it's been it's been pretty sweet. It's well well deserved. You're writing. Um, is very valuable for me in my process and 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 so i hope you keep doing it i hope i hope you keep sharing ideas um you know like i said that monday monitor is something i read every single monday without fail um so if people if people want to go and learn more about you obviously we've shouted out your Substack, but uh you know we connected on twitter so uh what's what's the twitter handle yeah it's at dofcap t-o-f-f-c-a-p very easy. I'm, I try to write a little bit uh, every day about what I see. Again, I look at lots of companies. Uh, it's just, you know, putting out ideas as well. But uh, I mean, it's it has to be. I mean, it's an interesting journey. To be, to be honest, I, you know, I've been on Twitter for some time, but I never took it seriously. So I yeah. never did it seriously. And maybe that has been one of the biggest mistakes, uh, at least in my professional career, because I mean, the amount of smart people and generous people as well, very, I mean, many, many generous people just sharing ideas, just sharing research, and uh, also, you know, for free, um, also, you know, this opportunity that we, you know, you get to know each other uh, online and then you have a chat. I mean, it's amazing. I, I absolutely under, underestimated uh, the power of, uh, of Twitter. So, yeah, definitely will continue to be on there. And I mean, if you have any questions, uh, anyone out there, want to talk about one of the investments, you know, just DM me. I'm always open for a conversation. Awesome. And then the last converse, or the last question I ask um, every guest in our conversation is if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, many different kinds. Uh, to be honest, nothing to do with uh, investment. I think it will be Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix. I don't think we've yeah. had it as an answer. That's sweet, though. Yeah, I, like I, mean, that. I, I, I still play a little bit of guitar, but I played tons of guitar back when I still had hair. And uh, I mean, it's uh, it's uh, yeah, definitely one of the most interesting characters out there. Yeah, you can see my guitar in the background there. I don't know if you can see it. Absolutely. Acoustic. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah, a little acoustic <laughs> uh, Spanish style nylon strings. Um, I love it. I love it. I love I love playing the guitar. So it's, it's, a, it's a fun little fun little outlet. Well, Poff, thanks so much for doing this, man. Um, I'm excited to release it. I think people are going to really enjoy this. And best of luck the rest of the year, and best of luck growing your Substack. And and uh, you know we'll do this again when you're at eight thousand plus followers, and <laughs> and and we'll 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 have a great time. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Today's episode is also brought to you by Marhelm Data. Marhelm is an information service for investors to find real value in an overvalued market. 
With a focus on shipping and commodities, Marhelm helps you stay on the pulse of global trade, track global sentiment, and identify compelling global investment opportunities. Value Hive listeners can get 20% off a Marhelm data subscription by using the code VALUE at checkout. That's V A L U E at checkout. Head on over to marhelm.com, M A R H E L M.com to get your discount today. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.